Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, United Ireland's companion podcast series, where we talk to really, really great journalists about the stories that matter to them and about their job, their job of work. This is a very special episode of Byline because it's the first one that is being done IRL in a long time. Stephen Carroll is the business editor of France 24. From Dublin, he worked as a radio reporter. He presented Young People's News on RTE. He has worked for Sky News and the BBC before joining France 24 almost a decade ago, where he covers business, obviously. He presents the weekly television show People and Profit here in Paris, where we're talking, and also covers things like the globalist Glasto, that is Davos. Um, he's laughing now at me. Um, so uh, thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. And we always start uh, byline by asking people um, where did you grow up and when did the trade of journalism come calling? So I grew up in Rathfarnham in Dublin and I was a very chatty child, shall we say, which I think has continued into adulthood, um, mostly for in an obnoxious sense. But um, I, when I kind of actually started crystallising into journalism was when I was I went to UCD. Uh, I had been thinking about doing communications-y, journalism-y and my parents talked me out of that, shall we say politely. Uh, so I ended up doing law in UCD, but I really wanted to get involved in the campus media. So first week into college, signed up for college radio, Belfield FM, got involved in that. The person who called me that week to, to get me on board to do stuff was Samantha Library, who now works in RTE, is a good friend of mine. And she got me involved in the college paper, the University Observer, and that was kind of where it all started. And then my first paying job was I was at the end of my second year in college. I was looking for work experience, sending out CDs, that ages me, uh, to radio stations looking for work experience. There was a postal strike. I couldn't send any more. I had to phone somebody, obviously excruciating when you're 19, having to phone somebody important and ask them for something. And I phoned uh, INN, which was the network newsroom for local radio stations, spoke to the editor who said, look, we don't do work experience, but come in and we'll give you a go for shifts. And that was it, like one phone call, kind of one person says yes, that uh, started everything that happened since. It's interesting because UCD keeps cropping up in these episodes of Byline as this really good training ground for, for journalists. What was your experience in college media? Because you were in national media at the same time. Yeah, well, I, I mean, everything I learned, we call it the, the University Observer School of Journalism because a lot of the people that end up there with a similar situation to me, interested in it, would love to make a career out of it, but really very conscious that there are excellent journalism schools out there training people, giving them work placements, giving them kind of a head start. So I feel like everyone that got involved in the college media and UCD that thought they might want to work in it just invested so much in it because they felt they had so much to catch up on that other people were, you know, on a more linear or logical path into the industry so for us to be have to do better and work harder and and kind of get places with that and and the core of people who were involved in the paper I mean you know some really great journalists you know people that I met when I was in college Neve Lyons is an RTE now Poor Kalpan who's at Reuters you know really amazing people who've gone on to fantastic careers in journalism in Ireland and elsewhere in the world and we all just kind of clicked and, and, and learned from each other as much as anything else but that's how I I suppose learned how to do the thing that then later on became my job. INN is a really interesting um, Petri dish, I suppose, of, of journalists. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, like, why not? Let's, let's just pretend there probably was a lot of Petri dishing going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, but it's something that is also kind of forgotten about, in a way, in the ecosystem of Irish journalism, because so many great reporters came through there. Um, broadcast journalists and then people who ended up going into a lot of people in, in quite high in political communications as well and political advisors and stuff like that in Ireland. Tell me a little bit about that ecosystem. What was the job there? 
So it's the invisible newsroom because everything that you INN produced, you would hear on another radio station. So you'd hear it on 98FM or Galway Bay FM or Highlands Radio or whatever. So we produced all of the news that went to those local radio stations. Sometimes they would take it directly and it would be broadcast directly from the newsroom in Dublin. Sometimes they'd be repackaging it with local journalists to do it. So a lot of the time you'd have to tell people what INN was when you phoned them. I mean, you know, politicians would know, but outside of those sort of circles, it was kind of a, an explanation. But it, it did bring together quite, first of all, people with very diverse experience, people who'd come up through local radio stations who knew parts of the country very well, had great contacts there. And then a bunch of us that had come in kind of from Dublin straight into the INN newsroom. Um, and, and we covered everything. It was really broad Brushstrokes. I mean, when I think about it, some of the first things that I got sent to were economic briefings um, in the good days, before before crash number one, we'll say, the 2008 crisis. And that's the sort of thing that I realise now, in retrospect, like probably sowed some of the seeds for how I ended up going afterwards. But it was the breadth of what we covered because we were looking to, you know, provide the broadest coverage possible to a very diverse group of radio stations. And it was a very young newsroom. It expanded quite rapidly while I was there. And they had a lot of very talented people, some coming up with more experience, some had coming straight from college. And that gave us such a great kind of experience of covering every every sort of shape of news story that was out there. Um, were you there? Like INN was, a, was a, I suppose, a victim as, as so many, well, not so many, but some significant news organisations were of... Um, the collapse in revenue, the collapse of advertising and just the general economic... Um, Cluster Homes. Cluster Homes? Cluster Homes. Cluster Homes, that's a good one. Um, that happened in between, you know, 2008, 2011. Were you there when it went closed. no I was so I was I actually was out of the country by the time that it had closed but um, I had a lot of good friends working there and it was heartbreaking for so many of us that had uh, kind of built this family together in that newsroom to see it fall apart but it was what was happening everywhere in the industry and you mentioned so many of the people went on to work in political communication and other areas as well and I suppose that pushed a lot of these extremely talented people out into other sectors because that's where the work was and that's where their skills were in demand but it, I mean it was something that you know still we kind of talk about it being this you know high point in, in all of our careers when we had this great dynamic at a great time you know covering all sorts of new stories where did you go then from INN because as you say you were 19 when you went in there so what was the trajectory after that I did finish my degree I should point out I actually did manage to complete it um, so I finished my degree and then I got into RTE presenting news today which is their children's news program they were looking they recruit every sort of two years for a presenter reporter um, and I went up for that and I got it and I know that the INN experience was a big kind of part of what got me in there but I so I left uh, INN in 2007 I went into RTE and that was, you know, I used to, you know, go past RTE and struggle and joke carriageway and think, oh, someday I might be able to work there. Like, that's such the dream. And then being able to get in there so young was great. And and just, you know, having the experience of all the people around you that you soak up in a newsroom like that. What was that like? Because I always found that, like, really interesting in terms of a news format, because you have to, you do actually have to take the complex news stories of the day and distill them to a demographic who may not, necessarily know the ins and outs of you know Irish economic policy how, yeah. how do you do that uh, I mean a lot of it, it it's, first of all it's like a very good exercise that we should all be doing in our journalism all the time is you take out all of the extraneous elements you take out any assumed knowledge and you start from zero if I was explained you know you know an alien that's just landed how do you explain whatever's happening you know the Lisbon Treaty was one of the classic ones that came up while I was there and it, it was something that just provides you with such a window of bad habits you have as a journalist like leading questions being a prime example because you're we and we were told this when we started it's part of the training you get to do the job is teaching you how to interview children and you know you, you have to ask very open-ended questions but you also have to be ready to keep kind of say oh yeah go on and what was it about that and why and, and just ask very simple questions and allow children's space to expand on how they're telling want to tell you kind of whatever their reaction is or whatever the story is and it's a different exercise because you're not trying to it, it's not a combative form of interviewing you're you're looking to just try and you know kind of draw a story out of someone who's telling you and that's a really interesting journalistic exercise as well because it, it allows you to be very very paired back in what you're doing to allow a story to come through um, and that was kind of fascinating end of, of trying to explain things like, you know, uh, Bertie Ahern resigned while we were doing that show. So that was one of the things I had to explain is, you know, he didn't decided he didn't want to be theatre anymore. 
and that's I mean that's the long and short of it that's basically what happened and that's how you break down the story and, and doing a package explaining the Lisbon Treaty is still one of those opuses that I'm kind of like what was I thinking when I got involved in this but it was it was a it was an exercise that I'm you know very lucky to have been able to do at the time Can you recall how you explained the Lisbon Treaty to the young people of Ireland? There was a lot of flags involved like trying to explain like how EU institutions work the notion of like the EU citizenship notion that was introduced in the Lisbon Treaty of like giving people crowns so like they have a crown as like an Irish person but they get a second crown that goes on top of that that is a European flag because you can say that you're both Um, and you know trying to explain qualified majority voting to kids and like I basically got you know in, in this amazing school in Bray that helped me out with it but they we sat them all around a big table and had people say you know I want you know sweets at lunchtime and then oh no not enough people have voted so that doesn't mean you've, it's through you know or you know if one person says no then this is all finished and you know there, there are ways to explain all of these stories in kind of very simple language and concepts but it's about being able to having the time first of all to be able to find pare down those concepts and then finding a way of being able to explain them. We were this weird microcosm in the newsroom as well because first of all we were quite a lot younger than everyone else that worked there so you did have this moment of kind of like I really hope that I'm not like embarrassing everyone else around me because we would be there doing stories about like whatever baby elephant for example and then you know you're sitting next to like Brian Dobson and Sharon Yvola and preparing the 6-1 and talking about the banking crisis and you're like I think the elephant name is going to be this and having a great time but they, there were moments that you kind of thought like I really hope nobody's listening too closely to the conversations we're having <laughs> Where did you go after uh, that stint then? So I did the unthinkable and left a job in RTE so the News Today contract is a fixed term contract and I left before the end of it because I had before I'd gotten that job I'd gotten into a Masters in London which is something that had been kind of brewing in the back of my head as something that I wanted to do so I went uh, I did that job for a year then I went to London to do a Masters at the LSE in politics because it was just something I thought you know this is one of the things I constantly think about journalism is you have to keep adding to your foundational knowledge to be able to do it's not the reporting skills that you're going to develop in an academic environment in some situations I think it's the more you know the better that you can find windows into stories so that was my thought in doing that I went into the Masters in Conflict Studies um, and that was that kind of moved me to London and from there I spent kind of a very desperate few months looking for work and again through an Irish friend of mine got a name of somebody at Sky and that got me into Sky News and working on their Overnight World News programme Sky News as a breaking news environment um, is maybe not notoriously hard work, but but can be quite stressful. You're dealing with um, massive international breaking news stories uh, and potentially being maybe if it's overnight, there may not be loads of people there. What was the atmosphere there like? And were there any moments or any stories breaking where you just were like, oh shit, I really have to now get on top of this? I mean, like how many times a day would that happen? <laughs> like there is, there's, if you've ever seen the newsroom and they talk about red and yellow wires, like there is a still a like minor heart attack that I'll have when I see certain wires coming in. You think like, oh God. And you know, it's in my job there, luckily I'm only responsible for a certain section of the news. So I don't have, have the same reaction. But one of the jobs that I did, I was at Sky for about three years and London and one of the jobs that I did was I was foreign news editor and then you're you know you're on duty 12 hour shifts day or night and at night you're by yourself so you're in charge of the whole world outside of uh, the Anglo-Celtic Isles and space so if anything <laughs> happens in any of those places you have to decide what you're going to do about it and then you have to put whatever resources are necessary into action waking people up in the middle of the night which is one of the worst things that you have to do in that job is like you know somebody's only had two hours sleep and you're immediately thinking well so- sorry it's time to get up um, something has happened and look I would say that in the three years I worked at Sky that I got ten years experience easily it's extremely fast paced the pressure is huge uh, for good and for bad the good part of it is is that it binds you really closely with people that you work with and you establish relationships with people very quickly because you're all kind of working under such huge pressure all the time it also brings out the worst in some people and that's the other aspect of it that's you know can be present in a lot of broadcast newsrooms and it's an interesting experience because you later on now kind of with the distance that I have from it I often think like well I really don't want to be like that person Mm. that I met that I had a very bad experience with because and I understand the pressure that they're working under and you usually understand the motivation 
but I'm always so admirative of people who were, you know, there were some correspondents that I worked with who were just always so calm and so understanding. And like when someone phones them being all like, I'm really sorry to have woken you up, but I just think this might be important. And they were always kind of, you know, as long as you weren't calling for something ridiculous, people were very understanding about things like that. But it's, it's it's a pressure cooker. And there are days that you couldn't leave your desk to go to the toilet. Like I remember distinctively the day of the... I mean, then it seems so mad, but major world events in this sort of context. But the day of the Anders Bering Breivik attack in Norway, I just remember that particularly because I had stood up to go to the toilet and to leave my desk. And that came in. And then I think about three hours later was the next time I left my desk. And that's just how it worked. And it was very exciting. And it really, you really did come home feeling like you'd done an amazing day's work. Because, you know, I mean, I was, you know, a cog in the machine of putting things into place, but you, there, there was great pride out of that as well. But it was tough. And I, I don't think I could do that job now mm. uh, at my greatly advanced age compared to when I did it then. Are there any other stories from that time that stick in your head as, as just like, OK, hold on, hold on to like white knuckle time? Yeah, I mean, so I, I was on the foreign desk for the whole of the Arab Spring. So that was, you know, huge. And we had a team, teams who did incredible work in Libya. Um, there's that famous story about Alex Crawford riding into Tripoli in that convoy with the rebels. Um, and like I would have been working all around. I wasn't on that night, but I was on the following morning. And, and you know, that sort of stuff is, um, it's once in a lifetime stories to be part of. And, you know, I wasn't the one who was there in the field doing the hard work, but doing some, you know, part of my job is a lot of the coordination and making sure that we, you know, have all the elements of the story, that everyone knows everything they're supposed to know, that the people in the field know, you know, what we're expecting from them, that, that we can, you know, if we can share information between our teams. But there's, there was lots of very mad moments to that whole um, situation as well. Like I remember at one point, I, uh, one of our teams got separated in Tripoli. And I was on Google Maps of Tripoli being like, I know they were on this side of the roundabout. So I'm guessing if, if you know, the cameraman was one place and the correspondent was somewhere else and we couldn't get through to, I think, the correspondent. And I was kind of saying, well, you know, there's only two ways that he could have gone. So he must have gone that way. But of course, you know, these are where they are. There's people firing guns all around them. And like, it's not like they can move easily. But that was the sort of exercises that you were taking part in of being like, I wonder where he might have gone. Let's just try and work out using, you know, in London, in like a warehouse in West London, which we nicknamed Skyberia because it was so far away from everything, that you like trying to figure out that sort of thing at a desk while obviously the people in the field are experiencing something totally different but that was one of the weird aspects of the job uh, you're reminding me of a particular logistical triumph that happened with that coverage whereby the camera person oh that was like the compass this is the compass and the the satellite unit yeah, yeah that's andy marsh who's an incredibly um talented producer who was with so there was a team of three it was a cameraman alex crawford the um, correspondent and Andy Marsh who was the producer and Andy was someone who was based in London and I worked with a lot and he was there with the the BGAN which is one of these like satellite units which is sort of a regular backpack size basically but to get it works on a satellite and to get the satellite working you had to make sure it was pointing the right way so he was there with a compass pointing to make sure that as they were moving that their unit was always pointing the correct direction for the satellite and like that's the sort of amazing like that's proper MacGyver you know ingenuity to, to be able to think of stuff like that whereas we used to be playing games in London because there were only a certain number of slots you could be up on a began across the entire system so we would be watching all the other news channels saying okay Al Jazeera are on one CNN are on one BBC is on one that means there's one slot left so if you know whoever goes up next they're going to fill up the satellite spaces and that's the sort of weird logistics you end up playing with yourself in the office being like oh okay I think the BBC are nearly finished we should be able to go up next and you know this is not coordinated it's just that you're kind of trying to work out just by using the information that you have access to how basically satellites are working in the sky I would be very bad at that Stephen <laughs> I think like the, the space is full sorry yeah. oh I think my best um like trigger because you know this so this always like you play so much of this job involves you working on your adrenaline the whole time one of my stupidest adrenaline moves that i had was when um there was a mining tragedy uh somewhere in the uk and it had been maybe a year after the chilean miners and some editor in the newsroom said get me a chilean miner so i had picked up the phone dialed our washington bureau because it was then who had covered the the chilean miners and I was like halfway through asking the question when I was like, this, no wait, this, this is a terrible, like this is a terrible idea. And I was like, I'm sorry, I've, I've just kind of had one of those out of body experiences where I haven't thought through what I'm about to do. 
obviously this is not a feasible thing that somebody would be able to come and talk to about this. I was like, also, I'm not sure that any of them speak English. And like, thankfully, the very patient colleague of mine in Washington was like, no, I don't think that would work. And I was like, thank you very much for your time. Have a lovely day. Goodbye. And then, you know, die. You know, cringe your skeleton out of your body at your desk while trying to think about what to do next. You also worked for the BBC in and around that time. Yeah, so I um, got on, after many, many years of trying, got onto the freelance panel for the BBC World Service. Um, and I did that, was freelancing at Sky at the BBC at the same time. It only lasted for about six months, just because logistically it became too difficult. I had been leaving gaps in my schedule because Sky was booking me quite far in advance. So I was leaving, kind of trying to leave three days a week free to be able to do the BBC. I ended up working seven days a week, which was bad in general. Um, the World Service, I was lucky enough to work in Bush House, which was the legendary World Service building um, on Aldwych in London, which was, I mean, walking into that building, you really, I was, I was like, this is it. This is my dream job. This is where I've always wanted to be. And it was just at a difficult time for the World Service. They had, they were in the middle of a funding debate with the UK government. There were programs being closed. There were, you know, people were struggling for work. And I kind of realised quite quickly that I wouldn't really be able to make a living out of freelancing there in the way that I was at Sky. And, you know, I, I stayed with it as long as I could. Um, because, the, I mean, what, a, what an organisation full of incredible knowledge. You know, people would be sitting around a, a pitch meeting at a programme and kind of saying, oh, you know, I suppose we could always try and speak to, to this person and they'd kind of drop three names who's, who they have numbers for. Like, you know, we could just call Hamid Karzai and ask him. And you think, like, wow, this is really an incredible um, organisation to exist. I, I, one of the times well, I was working there during when Mubarak was... Um, leaving power in Egypt and there was a moment they talked about sinking the streams which I was like is that a Ghostbusters reference like what are, what are we talking about but I didn't know at the time there were 11 different streams of the world service that existed around the world and they could basically come collapse them all into one and do one single thread of programming and they did it for massive news events and that meant you know your audience would go from 50 million to 100 million and you'd be like oh right just 100 million that's that's fine but that was the sort of power the world service has and it's still an amazing organisation. It's just I wasn't, I suppose, there at the right time to be able to make something more out of it. In 2012, was it you decamped to Paris, or what year was there's it to the, go? There's the there's the like official version of this story, and there's the much less kind of gratifying or much less um, fun version of the story. The non-fun version is that I had been working doing these kind of two freelance gigs I've been working a lot and really had burnt myself out and hadn't really realised and I was in a horrible changeover from a night to day shift and it was a week somebody had gotten me a ticket to the foreign press awards in London which was like a really big deal and I was like super happy to go but it, it was sandwiched between two horrible shifts and I think I'd like rushed to do it came back did I think I was doing a night shift into a day shift. So I had done a night, you know, you finish at 6am and you're back in at 6am the following morning. So trying to figure out when you sleep and that is already a nightmare. And I basically was awake at four o'clock in the morning, unable to sleep, going, this can't be my life. Like I can't, I can't, I can't go on like this. And that was the moment I was like, I need to do something. And I, I had a contract break coming up at Sky because of the way that their contracts work. So I knew I would have to take a month off. And I thought, okay, this is the time to do something different. I'd really wanted to get back into reporting because I'd been doing kind of producing and news editing at Sky. So it's like, I want to get back into reporting. Uh, Maybe this is the moment to go to Paris. And the window that I had of this month off was a couple of months before the presidential election here um, in 2012. And I'd said to myself, okay, I had done my year abroad in France. I had some French. I had some friends living here. I knew had some friends that were working at France 24. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll give it a go and I'll, I'll go for a couple of months. I sublet my room in London for three months to come here. Sky had very kindly said they would let me work in their election programming here. So I had that set up. I had been in touch at France 24 about some shifts and I kind of got here and I started working and I realised that, like, first of all, I really liked France 24. I liked what they were doing. It was interesting. I was getting a lot of freelance work from various different places, from RTE and elsewhere. And I kind of realised this was putting me more in the line of the sort of work I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, I'm still here nearly 10 years later. Tell us about France 24. France 24. So it is an international news channel, part of the public broadcasting. Um, it's, a, it's a public broadcaster here. So we exist in French, English, Arabic and Spanish. The French, English and Arabic channels are all based in Paris. The Spanish channel is in Bogota and Colombia. We all work in the same room, so I work with someone who does my job in French every morning, and I have a colleague who works in Arabic as well, so we're all linguistically mixed up in the newsroom. We're not kind of separated off into teams. 
it is the most multicultural, multilingual newsroom I've ever worked in. I mean, the, you know, the sort of emails that go around is someone, you know, does anyone speak this language? My favourite one does, was, does anyone speak Kurdish? And someone's response was, which dialect? Um, which gives you an idea of the sort of conversations you have in the newsroom. Like, I feel like very much like the dunce of the class, only speaking kind of two and a half languages. So, you know, I work with people who are incredibly talented linguistically and, and journalistically as well. Um, and so our, we are a global news channel. We do cover a lot of France. It's in the name. And uh, we, I suppose, the, the original conception of the channel is we would provide a French view on the world. Um, that's been kind of, I suppose, shaped over time to be, you know, very kind of like European and we kind of, that's sort of how we operate. But France 34 as a news channel is, is quite, like, it's quite straightforward. We do the news in 15 minutes. It's kind of quite straightforward bulletins and we provide coverage of places that a lot of other news organisations don't, particularly in English, because we cover a lot of Francophone West Africa um, and parts of the world. We have correspondence and I think it's 160 countries. So we have people all over the world that we can kind of touch, you know, touch base with and access stories. Um, and that's how, that's what puts together our output. And what does your job as business editor involve, like time? Because you, you're still on a bit of a crazy that's shift yeah, clock. Yeah. Exactly. My life of sleep deprivation through news. Um, so I run our coverage of business economics in English. So my job is part live, uh, part sort of magazine programming. So I present and edit our live business updates on the early half of the day. So my shift starts at half five in the morning and I have two hits in our breakfast program and one in our lunchtime program. These are all European time zones there because we're broadcast globally. And then I also have a weekly business show, People and Profit, which is where we do kind of longer format explanatory in-depth stuff as well um so my job is kind of straddles our news and magazine output so i'm kind of both in what's happening today and also trying to do the take a step back and what does this mean and how does the how you tell stories from french perspective or to french audiences or global french-speaking audiences or whatever obviously it's multilingual or whatever how does that kind of storytelling or what people are interested in change for you from going from Irish broadcasters to UK broadcasters to French? I think a lot of it's probably in the news choices that you make as to what, I mean, uh, the way that I do it in my job is that I think of, you know, our audience is, is people who are interested in the world. They're perhaps might have an association with France. They might have lived there. They might have learned French, might have just visited and really liked it. It's, it, we're a continental European news channel and we're in English, which is unusual as well. So we have that perspective of being able to invest and report in, on countries like France and, and with context and perspective that some, of, some other organisations don't have um, or don't have as easily accessible to them. Uh, it's, you know, I, we don't have a sort of, there, there isn't sort of like a, you know, an editorial line that we must talk about the following issues. It's still journalism and it's still news you know, judgment in the same way that it would be in any news organisation. I would just say that probably our reach of the world is a little bit broader. So we're, you know, we're often thinking about things. Oh, if there's a really interesting story in India that we want to spend a bit more time talking about that because we know that's important for our audience. Um, and, and kind of stories coming out of continental Europe that perhaps we can shine a light on places that may not be getting coverage somewhere else. Mm. And what what kind what have been the kind of major stories that you've really got your teeth into over the past decade here so a lot of like france's economics up and ups and downs obviously um some really interesting stuff around the, particularly going through the last socialist government about reforms labor market reforms pension reforms is a big one pre covid as well a lot of this sort of idea of france's economy trying to you know navigate this duality of being one that has a huge and very well-funded public sector uh, and also kind of working in a global market environment as well and trying to balance those two things. That's been kind of a very big theme in my job. I've covered a lot the international tax story as well. It's something that I've kind of have between my reporting on Davos as well. That's something that's kind of been quite a consistent theme. France has been a very strong, vocal uh, participant in that process of reforming global corporate tax. So that's been very interesting for us as well. Um, it's, I mean, it's coming from so that business economics point of view, I kind of naturally gravitate towards French stories. But of course, there are, you know, we do stories about global inequality. We do stories about, you know, uh, racism and economics, all of, you know, bigger picture stories as well that can come from anywhere in the world. You know, Argentina's currency crises, the Greek crisis, you know, chapters one through N of, of you know, every time that something 
uh, happened within the the bailout of Greece and and how that affected things. Most of the eurozone crisis would have been very much something that we kind of did quite a lot on. Mm. It's funny because with the I think because Irish people are so scarred by our specific element of the uh, global economic crash and the ensuing Great Recession that oftentimes the eurozone crisis and the and the European aspect of that is kind of forgotten about in a way from an Irish perspective we just think of like the Irish crash well it did because I mean it, in in time wise it resolved itself quote unquote reasonably quickly because Ireland was the first to come out of the bailout of, of the bailed out countries um, certainly like because of Ireland's experience is one of the reasons why it's something that I've always been very interested in and that I've followed up on subsequently as well with other countries but I think part of that that element is I mean obviously you're going to be more focused on what happened to you in your own country um, but by uh, you know by comparison if you look at what happened to Greece like it's you know the, the suffering that people had there through and the length of that crisis and the, the still deepening scars now I mean the the scale of it is, is is completely different but in so many ways incomparable as well because the economies are so different and they're very different countries mm. oh and that's time <laughs> the sixth one there kicking off uh, in the fifth arrondissement um, wait till that wait till that knocks off but one of the things um, okay if you were listening closely you'll know what time it is <laughs> one of the things that uh, um, I'm fascinated by uh, in, in your work is covering Davos and I know I you know, gave it a little trite uh, slag at the start, but it, speed, speed dating for CEOs. But it is such a, a mad ecosystem to me, observing from afar. First of all, can you tell me what actually happens at the World Economic Forum and what being there as a journalist is like, and how do you cover something like that feels so impenetrable? It's equally mad and incomprehensible when you're there as well. And people's experience of Davos is completely different based on what you're there for. So I'm very lucky in my job that I'm actually allowed to cover the event. I'm allowed to cover the topics that they're talking about, the big issues that are being discussed, and I'm given quite broad scope to be able to do that, um, which I feel very lucky when I get to do that it is I mean essentially it's a conference right like they have a conference centre that you know there is very high security to get into it's like going through an airport and when you're in the conference centre then you're you know you're turning around you're like oh there's the Israeli defence minister there's you know the French finance minister you know, there's Pascal Donahue over in a corner. You know, it's it's very odd. There's Goldie Hawn. That was the, one of the oddest ones the first year. I ended up in a queue behind Goldie Hawn for something. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't cover myself in glory. You're not supposed. To, you're not supposed <laughs> to talk to the celebrities, which I didn't realize. I didn't do anything too stupid, but I was definitely well warned not to return to that because one of the reasons that you know you have to have a certain level of accreditation to be given access to things. And you do sign up to a charter for what you're supposed to, which is basically just behave yourself and let people live their own lives. But it is it is mad in terms of the, the people that you see, the cast that are around there. But you're so there's the things that happen on the stage, and that's like the big scene, Davos, the big speeches, Trump, Macron, whatever, making their speeches on the big stage. Then there are the informal gatherings that happen around the conference center, which are not open to the media. They're called igwells, informal gatherings of world economic leaders, world and economic leaders. Um, and that's the idea is there to try and get people together in rooms to discuss issues, be it climate change, be it workers' rights, that represent different aspects of that story. So both kind of political leaders, business leaders, union leaders, getting all of their voices around a table and allowing them to have a discussion at a very high level, perhaps chaired by someone like Christine Lagarde, you know, to, to be able to have those sort of discussions on issues which should give food for thought to both business leaders and policymakers that they can take away and bring that with them. Um, then there's the entire circus that happens around it, the town of Davos. It's it's all an event space. Everything is an event. You know, who's running which, you know, they'll have countries running parties. The, you know, the Mongolian party was uh, a spectacle, frankly. Um, very enjoyable spectacle, but absolutely mad night out that you're kind of wondering why it was there. Um, and it was it was a, to promote uh, Mongolian culture and, and you could go and have your photograph taken in a yurt with the Mongolian president. Um, so you have com- countries doing that. You have regions of places that are trying to promote investments. So they're throwing events as well. You have companies that are hosting events for to try and get you know their most important executives in touch with the right people. And you know there are certain parties that will fly in celebrities, so they have a celebrity performance there as well. I don't think I've really seen any like secret celebrities there. You know, you, you could be in twelve different places and see. 
12 different incredible things uh, during the course of Davos. A lot of it, you know, it, it is probably, from a journalistic point of view, it's, it's, it's access journalism. I mean, it's getting the reason, the value for us being there and uh, for me being there as our business editor is that we get time to speak to company leaders and political leaders that we wouldn't necessarily otherwise have for simple logistical reasons. Television is a logistics game. You have to have your cameras in the right place. You have to be able to do it. And if we're there and we have a setup, we can say to people, come to us and it'll be, you know, we'll be as efficient as possible. You know, we'll come and do an interview and you won't need to come to a studio or you don't need to be in a particular city or whatever. We can do it while you're there. And and most of the politicians and the business leaders are there to do a round of media while they're there. And that's the time that we can get to speak to people that we don't otherwise have access to. What's your general takeaway from it in terms of its influence? Like, is it all just kind of a big get-together where a talking shop or does kind of broad top-level policy get developed? It's very difficult to tell because I think a lot of... I think the advantage of it is it can bring people into rooms that otherwise can't be couldn't be for, for political or other reasons wouldn't be able to meet formally so that the because of the way that the conference center is set up everyone's there that nobody is separated from anyone else you can have a meeting between perhaps rival political leaders or perhaps between countries that you know you can have that informal gathering which wouldn't otherwise be possible politically or logistically to get people together in the same room and i think that's part of the value of it it's very difficult to say exactly, to point to policies and say, this was decided here. Like on the international tax reform thing, we thought when Macron, or not Macron, when Bruno Le Maire met Steven Mnuchin, uh, was it two years ago now, when they were in the middle of a big fight over, over taxation on, um, on imported, uh, imported French products into the US, you know, there was a, a, a kind of a ceasefire as such that was agreed after talks between those finance ministers in Davos. So a lot of the time it's just getting people into the same room to talk but it's, you know, it's not the easiest thing that you can point to a list of achievements. There are initiatives that people sign up to in Davos, particularly a lot of, been a lot of environmental ones in recent years of companies signing up to saying, you know, we're going to be, whether it's net zero or reducing plastic or, you know, there are commitments like that which they can sign up to publicly, which they can then be held accountable to. So that's kind of another element of what the World Economic Forum tries to do. But it's, I mean, it's an organisation which promotes public-private partnership. So what they're trying to do is is bring together those people to speak in the same room and hopefully guide them towards a you know solution that's good for all of us. Now we've had some um, good chats over the years about uh, Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. And um, I'm just so fascinated by how because obviously Ireland has a very very specific. Um, role and um, there's loads of consequences and all of those things that we know about Brexit and so Brexit has never left um, the Irish news landscape um, and in fact just keeps coming back and back Um, but what I'm just fascinated by is how other um, EU countries feel about it or deal with it or don't deal with it um, considering it's such a huge it's become the cornerstone of Irish current affairs basically um, for the past few, well, good few years. Until the pandemic came along. Yeah, until the pandemic came along, yeah. So, but but from your work and from, from obviously um, the economics and business side of things and trade stories and all that kind of stuff, um, what has been, like, do, do, do people, even journalists, still care about Brexit here? Is it on the radar? It, it is. And, but it, there was a, like, the thing that was strange is that when the vote happened here, I kind of very quickly felt like France was a bit like, well, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Like, you know, good luck. And and then it was like, why is this? Why are we still talking? Why is this still happening? Why are we continuing having to have conversations about Brexit several years down the line? Now that's obviously a very kind of uh, vulgarized, broad brush kind of assessment. But the you know, it it just wasn't as big a deal here. People kind of occasionally things would come up. People are saying, oh, you know, what about? the Eurostar what about this but it didn't have this especially when the question of European citizens rights was settled that was kind of one of the big things obviously because there's a huge French community in London but then the story kind of became more about what can France get out of this like what business can they win from 
the UK, like what banks are going to move here. You know, we had uh, JP Morgan opening their new uh, offices here a couple of months ago, and that was a big kind of trumpet blowing affair where everyone was saying, oh, look, you know, we've got big expansion. And there are a lot of people who are being, being moved or their jobs are being moved to Paris, not as much as anyone thought when originally Brexit happened, like it's still relatively small and Paris hasn't, you know, there's loads of different measures of saying who's won the most business to go different places. Essentially, it's fractured across Europe. So Amsterdam's gotten quite a good bit. Dublin's gotten quite a good bit. Paris has gotten quite a good bit. Frankfurt is getting some as well. But it's, you know, we haven't had this up, you know, this one thing about global finance is going to up and leave London and land in Paris. That just didn't happen. Uh, that's kind of frames a lot of the French conversations around it. I mean, I still think that, you know, the big moments, the signing of the withdrawal agreement, the, you know, the, obviously the, the, the date of the last moment of, you know, Brexit being completed at the end of last year, that was a big thing as well. Um, there have been intermittent things about fishing, because obviously that's where a lot of the, you know, it's the closest relationship part. There's been stuff about delays at Dover and Calais. But not it because of the, I mean, if you think about it, right, France is has about the same population as the UK. It's physically a much bigger country. Like, area-wise, its economy is very different. They're not at all as dependent on the UK as Ireland is. And for that reason, it, it just hasn't been such a big deal. And there is this slight sense that every time there was a big Brexit thing, that people were kind of saying, still, like, is this not over? Did we not do that? Um, but So it's it's been very different, the perspective from here. What is your perspective then on on how the European Union may change now um, with regards to where the power lies? I I think it's already happened mainly is that, you know, France, we talk about the the Franco-German couple leading Europe, you know, the, the kind of two powerhouses, this relationship between Paris and Berlin being so important as to kind of how Europe is run. The the dynamic that is shifting and what I think is interesting now particularly with what's happening with the recovery fund money being being rolled out to European countries is that are we seeing more power shifting southwards in Europe and more influence and are the southern countries like Spain and Italy you know seeing more recognition for the fact that they are very large economies with big populations who should play a bigger part in the, that power centre of Europe uh, and then, you know, there's, there was that talk a lot about the new Hanseatic League of Ireland aligning with the Baltic and Northern European states on, you know, issues where they felt they were politically aligned. So that shift is is happening and in some cases has already happened on certain issues. And I think that, you know, certainly the Ireland is role and importance, I mean, looks in a lot of senses to be bigger and more important post-Brexit. And certainly the support that it's gotten from other European countries, including France, has been very strong and very consistent and and very unwavering through all of the last couple of years. So that's a really interesting dynamic to watch happening from here. But I do wonder kind of more long term whether we will be able to see this greater power shift to the south of Europe and will that be something that will change how Europe functions? Because so much of what happens in Europe is not about one country saying, no, I don't want this. It's about the conversations that happen between diplomats and the the side conversations and that's how policy works because that's how the European Union works. The biggest story that I've noticed um, while I've been here, and it's very visible um, indeed on the streets with the the massive police presence, um, is the the trial that has sprung out of the horrific events, um, mostly centred around the Bataclan. What's the discourse around about that trial and what is your own kind of interaction or experience with that? Because you were reporting that that night. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think for a lot of people, it's brought back a lot of memories of, of where they were that night. And those are the conversations I've been having with my friends over the past couple of weeks as this has been starting. So the, the trial is uh, happening in the old um, courts buildings right in the centre of Paris, so very near where Notre Dame is. And, you know, a very historic building where they built this special courtroom to be able to do it. There is, as a result, an increased police presence around there. There always had been quite a lot of police around central Paris anyway. Um, so that's kind of a physical reminder of what's of what's happening but for psychologically I think what a lot of us are doing are are kind of remembering what that time you know November 2015 felt like and what we were all doing and and you know we I've heard stories from friends that I hadn't heard before about where they were and what happened and um I mean I was I was in I had gone to a comedy gig I came out of it switched on my phone had a message from my mother saying bombs the Stade de France are you all right 
um, and I, I, yeah, I've texted her back, obviously. <laughs> um, but we, uh, with my friends, then we, start, we decided, okay, we won't get on the metro. So we started walking through Paris. I was checking in with colleagues and friends and finding out, called the newsroom. No one obviously answered the phone because it was chaos there. I started hearing from colleagues that were just going straight into the office to kind of bolster the teams then. Um, and I got, we were, I was heading with my friends towards where they live in the west of Paris, in the east of Paris, and we got to Bastille and I realised, okay, well, I'm actually very close to the Bataclan now, so I'm just going to go because I felt like particularly the way our teams work is we send kind of in several languages. So you might have a group that's been, a team that's been sent, but they might not have someone who's an English speaker. So I thought, okay, I'll just go and see if I can find where my colleagues are and if they need me. Um, and I was obviously getting a lot of phone calls then from other media organisations too, from RT and others uh, to find so out. So you were on the ground as it was happening more yeah, or less. Yeah, so I mean, I, by the time I got there, the the, the it was before the they had stormed the Bataclan. So the, the you know, one of the first things... Sorry, just a bit of wind there, Stephen. <laughs> it's all right. It's lovely, you know, Paris atmosphere. <laughs> we can smell the cigarette smoke. So go ahead. Um, so when I arrived, the police barricades were already up. One of the first things, that I bumped into a, a girl that I used to work with who was wearing a flak jacket in Paris, which was very bizarre. I mean, this was someone who's been in war zones reporting, and I, that was just a very arresting image of realising, OK, well, this is, this is how serious this is, that somebody has told her that she needs to wear a bulletproof vest to be reporting, um, which felt very strange. Uh, so yeah I mean I was there at the, the police barricades with, with where all the other journalists were I had one strange experience because once I'd kind of found my colleagues and checked in with all them of just sort of trying to look around and see what you could see and you know if there's anyone to talk to and there was a woman who was sitting crying by herself on a bench so I kind of went over and said are you alright and she said no my wife and daughter were in the Bataclan my wife and sorry my husband and daughter were in the Bataclan um, and I haven't heard from them and I don't know where to go so I, I sat with her for a few minutes and, and kind of got one of the policemen who was nearby and kind of brought him over and said, look, this is a situation, you know, where should she go? And she's like, I think, you know, I, I think they're out. I think I had I had a message from my husband, didn't really understand. I think they're being brought out, but I don't know where they could be brought to. Like, where would they go if they've been... Because some people had, had gotten out at the very start if they were close to the doors when originally the gunman went in. Um, so she was trying to figure that out. And that was just a really... I mean, I mean, I did. That was that was the moment where I just sat and, and talked to her for a while because, I mean, what do you do and like, what do you say to somebody? Um, I mean, it's not something that I kind of involved in my, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't recording an interview with her. I wasn't looking to do that. It, that was just sort of a very scary thing that you were like, oh, this, you know, this is going to be how much it affects us all. And you know, that was that night. Then there was the off thing that happens afterwards is you get a lot of scares. So, you know, there was a night out, a couple of nights afterwards I was having a... Because we all resolutely went back out and sat on terraces. That was a big thing that we all kind of tried to do. It was the whole Je suis en terrasse movement to be get people back to restaurants and bars because that's such an essential part of what Parisian life is. So I was out having a drink with a friend of mine and, and all of a sudden we just saw hundreds and hundreds of people running towards us, screaming. So we... We were next door to my friend's house, so we abandoned the, our stuff, didn't pay, ran back to my friend's house, went in, ran upstairs to her apartment, closed the door, and there was a knock on the door. And about 20 people had followed us into the building because they were like, please, we just don't know what to do. Can we come in? And we were like, yeah, of course. So we brought everyone into the apartment and, you know, it emerged very quickly that someone had thrown a firework into a crowd and it just sparked this panic. And there were so many of those sorts of things that happened over the following days because everyone was so jumpy. Um, and it's still a very, like, I still think back a lot about how that, for me, really, first of all, confirmed for me how much I love living here, how much I feel very Parisian. I mean, the joke I make is that I can be rude to anyone now. But the, <laughs> you know, there's, it, it, it's a very sort of singular experience, I think. And, and everyone still has, remembers where they were, remembers what happened, remembers that feeling of the days afterwards. And that's what we're reliving now with the trial. Is the and you know I'm not someone who's directly affected. I uh, there was a colleague of mine who died in the Bataclan, um, who would have been someone I would have known to say hello to. But you know I I don't have any particular affecting memory from that time. It's just the general atmosphere of that how tense it was and how you know everyone was so jumpy for so long. And then you know the, the other side of it was the professional part of it that I just worked constantly for I don't know how many weeks after that and, and didn't at any point like you know I talk a lot about adrenaline levels and news you know your my adrenaline levels never came down 
there were days when um, they were doing when they were doing the big police operation in Saint Denis, which was when they discovered um, some of the suspected attackers. Um, I was on air for I think seven hours straight, sitting in the studio just doing kind of like you know being across all of the wires and the police statements and everything, and just doing constant updates in the studio. And you know I remember coming out of that and I was actually like I was fizzing because my adrenaline had just gone so mental and I, I just like it was it was an out of body experience. Before I let you go, um, one of the aspects of your work is that you also report in Ireland for France 24 as well. You've been here the guts of a decade. When you journalistically now, as an Irish person, look towards Ireland for, you know, what has happened in a a mad decade in Ireland, actually, what are... Um, what is France 24 and what are French audiences interested in the kind of thematic stories around Ireland over that decade? Um, I mean, the st- so the stuff that I've been, I've done three that I can remember reporting trips to Ireland. So I did both the two referendums, marriage equality and the repeal referendum. And I was there for the end of the bailout in 2013 as well. Um, the, I mean, those were all very kind of symbolic moments obviously the referenda were absolutely huge and, and that was you know nobody was talking about anything else that was those were the stories that went around the world and they were seen in so so positive and, and such an interesting repainting of people's idea of Ireland and trying to understand of what our relationship with religion has changed and, and all those things that people had taken for granted as being part of what they viewed Ireland to be um, There, a lot of the Brexit story I mean I had a lot of my colleagues asking me questions about Northern Ireland and saying, you know, but why, what this, I don't understand the border and trying to explain to people that you can cross it and not realise and, you know, that it goes down the middle of the road in some places and this was all kind of new information for a lot of people, very well educated, well, well-read, internationally minded people, but it's just stuff that wouldn't have featured in, in, I suppose, their previous reading or knowledge. So, Brexit certainly brought a kind of a range of stories to it. I mean, certainly when I look at it now, I mean, I, I, you can't escape the housing story. Like, I, it's just one of those things that I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by and horrified by at the same time because it, there, you know, I, I've tried my best to understand the the structural reasons for it, but it it does just seem to be incredibly difficult to see a to see how it's going to be resolved quickly because it's not something that you can resolve overnight and requires big changes and then not it's it's really hard not to look at it from a perspective of you know if you live in France you have huge protections as a tenant you know it's there are very positive rules about getting mortgages to to buy it's very hard not to look at it with those frames and I know why all those things exist in France I know why they don't exist in Ireland it's not for not the want of someone thinking it's a good idea but see, you know, it would be, it's one of the things that I would, I would, you know, love to see kind of positive change on. Um, and I think it's, it's a story that, you know, the more you read about it, the more horrified you become by how difficult it is for people to find and maintain somewhere to live. And that, from my own point of view, it makes me kind of worry about what sort of cities you end up in. And, you know, being as someone who left, you know, I, le- I was lucky to be a person who left Ireland out of choice. I left because I was going to do a master's, but so many of my friends left without a choice, and I would hate to see that being something that drives people out of Ireland, particularly, you know, young, creative, talented people out of the country because it's just simply easier for them to live somewhere else. Stephen Carroll, business editor of France 24, all-round top Irish man in Paris. <laughs> Our man in Paris. Uh, but right before you leave, do you have any personal motto you would like to share that you think has coloured your work over the years? Oof, uh, just try and get as much sleep as possible in every situation. I am permatired and have been for oh, solid decade now. So, you know, sadly, the, new, the news doesn't stop, uh, but you have to. 